Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. I am Kyle Krieger. I'm so thrilled this evening to be joined by by Monita Bell from Teaching Tolerance. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you? I'm really good. You know, we're at, uh, we just crossed the uh, three-week barrier. There are three weeks left in our in our school oh. year, so we're, we're getting... It's fly-by, right? Oh, my goodness. I, you know, I, I was telling you before we got on here, I... I grew up in Wisconsin. I spent eight years in Houston, and this is my first year back teaching in Wisconsin. I have a I have a nephew who's about to be one, and a nephew who's about to be three that live about an hour from where I teach. And being around those guys, I've made this year fly by. I can't believe that uh, the the school year is almost done. But but we're we're uh, we're making it through. Is is the best I can say. So um, yeah, awesome. Like I said, we really appreciate you you having a conversation with us, talking about uh, teaching tolerance, the the magazine, and the and and the online presence, but more just you know what anti bias education and social justice education is, and you know what each teacher you know how we can do our part to to support that. So um, to get started, could you just kind of describe what your position is with teaching tolerance, and you know how you got to be in this position you're in now. Sure. So I am the senior editor for Teaching Tolerance. I've been in this position for about a year and a half. Um, For the three years prior to that, I was a writer and associate editor for Teaching Tolerance. And uh, before that, I taught college-level English for five years. And um, I loved teaching. I really did. Um, But I felt like I wanted to be doing something to more directly engage with education, uh, like in a, in a practical way. Uh, you know, I was teaching world literature and composition, all, mm-hmm. which is, all of which is very important. And um, there's obviously very important things you can do around social justice and bias in those courses. Um, but something was calling me to K-12 um, along those lines, and my skills and background are in writing and editing and so it really was a perfect fit and so yeah almost five years later here and, I am and and what college did you teach at um I taught at my alma mater Alabama State University which is in Montgomery Alabama and uh then at my next alma mater where I got my master's Auburn University oh. so I was at Auburn for four years Auburn I one of my uh one of my best friends that I met when I was teaching in Houston. She's a huge Auburn fan, so I, uh, I, I got, I gotta say that I give her a bad time every time Alabama wins anything. I still send her text messages, and she still gets, she still gets mad. So I do have. A, if you were in the state, it's very serious. And you know what's crazy it's because you know there's there's really no professional sports teams in Alabama, so. Uh, how do people True. how do people pick sides? Is it just like, hey, my parents liked Alabama, so I like Alabama. My parents like Auburn, I like Auburn. Or is there is there a rhyme or reason to how people pick? I really, it's probably everything in the book. You know, there's definitely you know families that support a team, um, especially if someone at some point in the family went to one of the schools. Although that's not always required. Um, and then you you have families where it's a house divided, as they say, right? right. Where, you know. Some folks are Alabama, some folks are Auburn. And so, yeah, it just, there's a wide range of reasons. 
Right. You know, and and yeah. growing up in Wisconsin, you know, you really the University of Wisconsin is really the only major university and where I grew up is close to Minneapolis St. Paul. So there were some people that were, you know, University of Minnesota fans, but then I moved to Texas. Ah. Texas and you've got the UT people and you got the Texas A and M people and the Texas Tech and the Baylors. It's just oh man and they're and that that's that's fierce down there too, especially the uh the people, the University of Texas people, and the A and M people. So, I I, I kind of understand what you're saying, but I would love to sometime go to the Iron Bowl and and w- witness that and see what an Alabama Auburn football game is actually like. It's an electric atmosphere. Uh, it really is, and, I, <laughs> and, and not I, just in the stadium, but just in the town, whichever sure. city it's sure. in. All right, yeah, it's hardcore. Yeah, so we'll get back. We'll our little tangent on football. We'll get back on track, but um. <laughs> Could you tell us about who, from your educational sp- experience, who was your favorite teacher and, and why was that person your favorite teacher? Uh, hands down, Mrs. Bryn Yark was my favorite teacher. Um, I had her for ninth grade English and then I had her again my senior year for AP English. And um, I, I think I knew since I was very young that I just was naturally inclined to words and language, like in all things ELA. But being in her classes really, I don't know, it, it just helped me tap even more into those natural abilities. She nurtured those abilities and kind of celebrated my affinity for all those things. And um, I actually have a nickname here on the editorial team of GT Tolerance. Some folks call me Comma San Diego because I, I don't play about commas. We, we're going to use them correctly. And so um, <laughs> they have Mrs. Brindard to thank for me being Comma San Diego. And, you know, it's just kind of an identity that um, I have fully adopted. I, I'm all about that grammar. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and this is this is kind of off the script, but just, just talking to you a little bit, what what do you see as, you know, in our society, you know, today when, you know, the written word, I, I don't want to say it's it's going away, but it's so different with text messages and, and Twitter and all those things. What do you see as the value of still cultivating those writing skills? What I always say, and, and I would say this uh, even back when I taught, is that it, it's really important to be able to navigate different levels of discourse, different types of discourse, um, especially depending on what you want to do, ultimately. Um, you want to make sure that whatever realm you're operating in, that the people you're communicating with can understand you as clearly as right. possible. And right. so, um, you know, I think there's room for all kinds of communication, whether it's quote-unquote uh proper grammar, or the, what do they call it? Standard English, standard American English, whatever terms you want to put on it. But um, I think it's about being able to effectively communicate in whatever setting you're in. Yeah, and I think, I, I, I think where I struggle the most is, you know, I send a lot of emails, you know, through our, you know, connecting with our podcast and, and as a teacher and like, it, it took me a few years as a teacher to really like be diligent to to proofread my emails like I, I don't even want to think about how many I how many I sent out that had typos and errors and you get people that question you back like hey what does this mean and and it really is important because like you said 
know, there are certain, I, I like what you said, navigating discourse at any level, you know, there are certain situations where you have to speak, you know, at a high level and write at a high level to be able to communicate with people who are, you know, operating at that same high level, whether it's, you know, in professional realms or if it, in personal relationships, you know, and I, I, lo- I love listening to someone who speaks well and, you know, not someone who is just like intelligent, but someone who really articulates himself well. I think it's a really important skill. Yeah, and I don't even necessarily think of it as, you know, high level or low level per se. I just think of it as, again, depending on where you are and what the setting is, being able to communicate effectively or appropriately. So if you are in a professional setting, then, you know, you want to be speaking in such a way that's appropriate for the setting. But if I'm hanging with my girls, (laughs) and actually they get on me sometimes to use words they don't know, but... You know, I, if if I'm hanging out with them and, my, and I'm speaking in a way that's really stilted or formal, then that's not appropriate. Right. And so I, I really do think it is about, again, what's fitting for the setting. Yeah, and that's, that's so funny what you said. My, my nephew that's almost three, I see him maybe once every couple weeks. And every time I see him, I feel like he's learned 50 new words. And, oh, yeah. and, and his, and his, and his thing was, you know, you'd ask him what he was going to do and he would say he was going to be nice and kind to people. And I was just like, oh. man, like, but that communication, you know, like how I communicate with him or, you know, with, and even in my, my teaching job, like I can't communicate with a 15 year old freshman the same way I can communicate with an 18 year old senior. You know, there's, right. there's the difference in those levels. So I, I think that's. Really important, and like I said, it was it was an off-topic question, but just hearing you talk about writing and and that made me want to ask it. So, um, what is your take on the state of education in the United States right now? Um, I really think this disinvestment in public education is one of the biggest things happening right now. You know, you have state legislators pushing for voucher systems that are, you know, in many cases, many cases designed to pull resources away from public schools. Um, That's a huge one. But, But also these kind of coordinated attacks that are happening with schools that are deliberate about being inclusive environments and, and having inclusive practices uh, so that they're meeting all their students need. And so, you know, when you have a school that affirms, yes, Black Lives Matter, but then you get these outside groups, um, you know, launching these really large-scale attacks and harassment campaigns against the people who work there. And, you know, that is a thing that we're hearing about more and more and more every day. And so um, it's it's really important to us um, to have these schools back but, yeah, I mean, these schools need vocal, vigorous support from, from their communities and um, the families of their students. Um, so those are two really huge things that we're concerned about right now, for sure. Okay, so then I think that leads in well to, to you know, just the question of, based on what you just said about getting those messages out there, how did teaching tolerance come to be and and what is your mission? You know, what's the mission or the philosophy of teaching tolerance? 
Oh, yeah, that, that really is a great segue. Um, so, um, as you probably know, Teaching Tolerance is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, so the, the SPLC was established in 1971, um, primarily in those early days doing um, litigation against hate groups and you know, other folks doing hateful things. Um, and then came the Intelligence Project, which uh, tracks and reports on hate groups. So Teaching Tolerance was established in 1991, essentially to try to put those other two projects out of business. So it, the idea was if we can help nurture generations of people who are more accepting of each other and uh, more empathetic and caring for one another and not afraid of difference and actually, you know, treat each other well and care about justice and fairness, um, then we can actually stop having to deal with these hate groups and, um, and you know, prosecuting them in the courtroom. And so um, that was the, the plan back in 1991. And to do that, by giving educators what they need to work that into their curricula and into their practice. And so um, our mission right now really is that we want to give schools and teachers the tools they need to help young people become active participants in our diverse democracy. And so the, the active part is really important. Um, and the diverse part is important. So not only getting young people to understand their own identities and all of their identities, because we're all more than just one thing, um, but also getting them to recognize and understand and appreciate the identities of others. Uh, so that's where the diversity part comes in, but also to recognize that in this world we live in, a lot of people, strictly for who they are, experience injustice and discrimination, and that when we see those things, there are things we can do to act and to try to change it. So, you know, no single person can change the world, but there are things we can do both large and small, individually and collectively, to try to stand up for what's right, to try to make change. And um, that is what we are set to do, and, and schools in particular, and they're little microcosms of the larger society. And so if, if educators are helping students, you know, in their own school buildings, to recognize these things and especially think about the action part, then, um, you know, we really believe and we hope that that will translate as they continue to grow and, um, you know, tap into their own power to be change agents. Right. So, so say you're, you know, you know, teaching a high school class, a high, high school English, and you have the situation like has happened recently with the student at Yale, you know, having... Mm a student called the police on them. You have the situation in Pennsylvania where some African-American ladies are basically kicked off of a golf course. And, you know, you have the situation in Philadelphia where the two African-American men are arrested for waiting for a friend to meet at Starbucks. So mm -hmm. how do you take those kind of situations and, and create those you know, meaningful conversations and meaningful lessons around around that curriculum when you have situations like that happening? Um, I think the very first thing is, you know, before you even bring that to the classroom, uh, is to do self-reflection. Um, you know, we all have different 
relationships to these stories and whatever feelings may come up. And uh, we actually have tools uh, to help folks do that very thing um, before you get into at least a planned difficult conversation with students. Um, to sit with yourself and figure out, okay, what's coming up for me? What are my levels of comfort and discomfort around this subject matter? Um, you know, kind of working through it yourself. And then with students, I think it's so important, um, especially in our increasingly polarizing society. And those stories you just pointed out, it's like we hear a new one every day, right? It's like every other day there's a similar story. Um, I think it's so important for educators to be talking about this stuff in the classroom. And there are some situations where, you know, you might have administrators at the school or district level to say, okay, teachers, we're not going to talk about this, or we don't want you engaging in this conversation in your classes. Um, the thing is, students, they hear about this stuff. Either they're getting it in the news themselves, or depending on their age, they're hearing adults around them talk about it. They, they have reactions to it. They, they care about it. And in many cases, it affects them very personally. And so I think it's really incumbent upon educators to not be silent about these things and to actually raise them in the classroom. And, and a very important part of that isn't necessarily doing the talking. I think it's taking time and creating the space for young people to talk about it, you know, um, how they're engaging with those stories, um, how they feel about it, what it means to them, what they want to see change, um, letting them write about it or, you know, journal about it in some way. I think uh, just intentionally creating space. And, you know, people are pressed for time. I absolutely know that. And in some cases, they're very, um, the day is very structured. But we also live in a real world that students are going to go back out into and have to confront and think about. And, you know, creating at least a little space to do that, I think is very important. And it, and it lets students know you care not only about what they think, but about what they're experiencing too. Yeah, you know, and, and we experienced it, you know, at my high school after, you know, after the Parkland shooting, um, we had a, a, a kind of polarized conversation, you know, among staff about what was the right thing to talk about. And, you know, there were a few, where I live is a predominantly Republican area, you know, predominantly pro-gun. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of people that just said, hey, let's, let's like really have a conversation about this. And, and we were, I don't want to say we were silenced, but it was, you know, there were, we were given, like you said, by administration, some talking points and, you know, things that we could go over. But, my teaching partner and I, we went in depth because our kids were, you know, ver you know, like they were like very frustrated by the situation and frustrated because they didn't feel like they were being informed, just like you said. So we, you know, we just asked them a simple question like, you know, what are you most afraid of? If, if you are a, you know, a pro-gun person that says, hey, you know, please don't take my Second Amendment rights away, you know, what do you fear in this situation in, in regards to, to school violence? And if you're anti-gun or wh however you want to classify the other side, you know, what is your deepest fear? And, and really, all our kids are afraid, and, and if we're being honest, like, I'm afraid as a teacher, like Absolutely. this, this yeah. is the, this is really the first time 
you know, in my adult teaching life that I actually, you know, feel some degree of like palpable fear yeah. uh, over, you know, what could happen, you know, and it, it can happen anywhere. It can happen to anyone. It can happen at any time. And I, like you said, I don't think I have the right answer, nor do I think there is just one right answer to a problem like that. But I really enjoyed that conversation. And like you said, just opening up and and making the space for the kids to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And and I think what you just said, too, illustrates the fact that, um, you know, sometimes people like to forget. Teachers are human beings, too. (laughs) And... Yeah, as educators, this is something I've been hearing a lot. I mean, it's not just students who are in danger in these situations. And I think, you know, being able just to have an open and honest conversation with students as a fellow human being who's in that space, um, I think is so powerful. And it, uh, it speaks to the community that you're creating in the classroom. Yeah, so, so kind of on that point, I, I know a lot of, you know, what I've read and what I've heard about tolerance is also associated with, you know, the the anti-bias education, like really trying to be anti-bias. So how does, you know, like you said earlier, self-reflect, self-reflection allow us to be less biased in the classroom? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think before you step into, because, you know, as, as a teacher, right, you you are in a position of power. Um, and authority, but I think, well, I shouldn't say but, because of that, I think it's so important for teachers really to be looking at their own identities, Um, you know, not only before getting into a difficult conversation, but just in general and how you're approaching uh, the classroom space and how you're approaching your interactions with students, Um, understanding, um, I would say, what, what people call visible and invisible identities. So you know who you are, you know the things that make you who you are, but also like what's your social position too? To not be thinking about those things, um, especially as they relate to your students' positions um, and what those similarities and differences might be, I think is, um, is a mistake. And um, we actually, uh, I probably shouldn't say this because it's not published yet, but <laughs> we've been working with um, an author of a short article for our website kind of on this very thing, um, starting out as a young teacher and feeling um, this connection to a very angry, frustrated student and recognizing herself in that student. But in focusing on the similarities, she did not really think about the differences that, that made their their experiences, their life experiences very different. And so in trying to connect with the student, she was inadvertently neglecting circumstances um, that were different from hers. And so I, I think that's just an example, you know, of um, the, the importance of, again, thinking about how your identity is relative to the space you're in, again, with the visible and invisible identities. And um, so I think that's where you have to start. Right. And and do you think that is is related to you know we were talking about the topic of you know just bringing it back to like race relations do you think you have to be reflective 
just on a certain topic. Like if I'm going to talk about race relations, I should reflect on my idea of race or my my biases of race, race relations. Or do we really need to take kind of a holistic look at who we are as people to be able to kind of get a better picture of who we are? I think definitely a holistic look. Because, again, I think it gets back to the fact that we have multiple identities um, and intersecting identities. So, you know, I'm not just black. I'm also a woman. I'm also a southerner. Um, Like, all those things intersect and work together to create how I experience the world. And so, um, yeah, I think it's all those things. It's your your sexual orientation, your gender, um, your religious identity or non-religious identity, all of that, um, because it all comes to bear in different ways. Right. So so then I guess my next question would be is, you know, when we have so many differences, you know, what are are some of the best tips that you have found or things you're working on that we can, even though we have differences, like you said, bridge those differences with empathy, because I think that's maybe one of the things I see in just, you know, small-town affluent Wisconsin is there's just not a lot of empathy for anyone that's different. And, and you mentioned earlier that our, our country is so divided and it seems like it's always just a shouting match. So, so what are some ways we can practice empathy to kind of bridge the gap in our differences? You know, um, just when you said that, it made me think, first of all, stories, stories are powerful. Um, you know, not only, you know, stories that someone is telling you to your face, but what students are reading, right? That what students are reading is, you know, just such a huge chunk of what they're consuming in school. And when educators are really intentional about the types of voices or the, you know, the range of voices and perspectives they're bringing into the classroom um, and thus discussing in the classroom, I think that plays a huge role in this. Um, so, you know, we, the we need diverse books was really big, you know, a few years ago. We don't hear that phrase as much, but it did kind of start, I think, a wider discussion about the need for folks to be reading about not only themselves, so mirrors, as people talk about, but also the perspectives of those of others, windows. And so... Um, not just to do a shameless plug, but uh, we have a whole library of, um, of texts, um, over 300 now, of, of all kinds, designed to help educators do that very thing. So even if you do have a more prescribed curriculum or a set of readings, depending on your subject, um, you can still get either in-class or out-of-class out readings that tap into different perspectives. Because the more we hear from other people, especially people who are not like us, I think the more we humanize those other perspectives and other voices. And um, so, you know, you're doing that in class discussion. You're doing that in having students write about what they encounter in these various texts. And um, that takes a level of intentionality. And that's something you have to really, really be deliberate about. Um, so in addition to um, the text that you bring in, I would say also um, what I would talk to you about before about the identity, diversity, justice, and action. Those are the four um, domains of our social justice standards. So these, this is a set of standards 
that an educator can use to, to be the basis of anything they're doing. So it's not really an add-on. It, it, you know, it's something that you can incorporate into what you're already doing. And it, it's broken down by grade level. There are all these um, grade level based scenarios to see how, you know, something like that could play out. And so if you're actually getting students to think about their own identities and those of others and how people can be treated unfairly just because of who they are, even if you don't have that experience, you're getting some insight, at least a little insight into an experience that's different from yours and recognizing it as unjust. Yeah. And then to begin thinking about ways that that can be changed, either immediately or in the long term, or just, you know, actually do some brainstorming about, you know, what would we need to do uh, to make this a more just situation. So those are just some examples, but they're really foundational, Okay, I and, think. and what were those four terms that you said again? It was identity, diversity, justice, and action. Perfect, I and have. And those make up our social justice standards. Okay, so you have your social justice standards. All right, mm-hmm. so uh, another question that I that I just have that is one that I struggled with, uh, you know, understanding the difference, um, and I think a lot of teachers do as well. What's the difference between you know equality in edu- in education and equity? Oh, I love this. Um, I, I love the way that one of our um, teaching tolerance award winners broke this down for her second graders. Um, and I think it's just a good way to remember it, which is basically equality is everybody gets the same thing, but equity is everybody gets what they need. We don't all need the same things. Um, and that, again, goes back to our identities, um, whatever those identities may be, um, the, the, stir- the circumstances that we come from, or, um, you know, a whole host of things. Uh, but everybody getting what they need. And so that could be resources. That could be, you know, more time to take tests. That could be um, extra time with the teacher. Um, Which sometimes, especially with younger kids, if they say, if they see a classmate, you know, getting more time on a test or getting a little more attention, it's like, well, hey, that's not fair. I'm not getting that. They might think that's unequal. And it is unequal, but it, but it's equitable because, again, students who need specific things are having those needs met. And too often the case is that, um, especially going back to the idea of resources and, you know, back to the, one of the early questions you asked me about the state of education, um, so many uh, different communities or schools are not getting what they need, but say they might be getting the same thing. Right. Did you get that distinction? Yeah. And, you know, the thing yeah. I was just thinking about what you said is, that, you know, as a teacher, if, if I strive for equality, I, you know, I can I can say everything is the same based on the assumptions that I have about a group of people or a wider group of mm. people or whatever it is. But if I strive mm-hmm. for equity, I, I actually have to get to know kids and get to know their stories and get a, a, a wide a wider view of, of who they really are because you can't really get to, like you said, to a person's needs unless you really get to know them. And, you know, I've known students, you know, in my past and students I have now that it's taken me a whole year just to crack them to, to let, you know, to let me in and just to open up about what they really need. So I, I really mm-hmm. 
think that's something because, yeah, you know, you do have a lot of kids that complain about, hey, that's not equal. Hey, that's not fair. Well, you know, equality, you know, and I just think equity is such a better thing to strive for. And it and it's something that I'm still learning about. And it took me, you know, a long time in my career in Houston to really understand, you know, that that equity was what we should strive for rather than equality. Right, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it comes down to, for so long, uh, a lot of the social justice struggles that were happening, especially on a large scale, it, it was about equality. It was about, can I get the basic rights <laughs> that I'm guaranteed in the Constitution, for instance? Right. But, um, but yeah, I, we, we definitely need to be thinking more about equity literacy, uh, and that's a term, uh, for instance, that Paul Gorski uses, Um and, and it really does speak to institutions. So it's not just recognizing when there are issues or even just responding to, but actually taking steps to redress what's inequitable. And, um, and like you said, I mean, you're exactly right. It, it takes getting to know your students and their unique situations. Right. Uh, it takes, you know, getting to know their family life or their home life. Um, right. In addition to, you know, their interests, um, their goals, uh, all of that. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying the conversation, but I, I know how busy you are trying to get this next issue out. So I want to be respectful of your time. So we're going to start to wind the questions down. So kind of to sum things up, what are you most excited about uh, at Teaching Tolerance right now? What, do you, what have you got going on? What are the big things you're working on? Oh, my goodness. Um, so back in February, we released our project called Teaching Hard History. And it's about um, you know, teaching the history of American slavery in just a more honest and robust way. And this came after um, a study in which we surveyed not only teachers who teach the subject, but also we quizzed high school seniors on their knowledge. And um, basically, we found that Students are graduating from high school knowing some basic things about this institution that was foundational to our nation. And then with educators, we learned that for the most part, a lot of them don't feel like they have the resources or the support they need to really do the subject justice. And so um, ever since then, um, we have created a whole suite of resources. So if you look at the frameworks on our website, it's called Teaching Hard History. We've got an entire framework that um, breaks down key concepts that students need to know and um, also ways that educators can teach it. We have um, a podcast hosted by Professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries at Ohio State. Um, and it's just been a really cool journey with him. I'm having conversations with scholars and legal experts and you know, just tackling various aspects of, of this history and, and how to do it justice. And, oh, goodness, let's, we have some videos coming up that, have, you know, that's, we're in the early stages of that. The initial version really is for upper grades, so we're getting ready to get into it with the younger grades, elementary. So I'm really excited about where this project is going and how it's going to morph and how we're going to, hopefully, you know, reach more people and get people to be thinking about doing this history right. Because we know a lot of people, um, if they get if they get it at all, it's super glossed over. It's 
overly simplistic, and in some cases it's just downright inaccurate. And uh, we have to do better because it affects our present. And um, you probably heard a couple of weeks ago that um, the Equal Justice Initiative, which is also located in Montgomery, uh, just opened their Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. And it's about this very thing. We have not grappled with, I mean, the, the breadth of our racial history in this country. Um, so not only slavery, um, but also the history of lynching, for instance, as a full-on system of racial control and oppression. And until we really reckon with that, you know, we're going to continue to get these false narratives. And quite frankly, uh, these un misunderstandings about why we are where we are today. Um, you know, that you can tie that into a whole bunch of stuff. The Confederate monuments, the, you know, yeah. the narratives around yeah. um, what I call the lost cause. I mean, there are so many ways you can take it, but it, it ties back to what some people have called our original sin, and that is slavery. And right. you can talk about whether racism was the father or the child, but they're intimately intertwined. Um, right. and, and you throw white supremacy in there as well. And so... Um, I'm just excited about what we're doing with this project, how it's growing. I'm really excited about um, this magazine issue that we're about to release in the next day or so because I got to sit down and talk with five black teachers who teach either primarily black students or only black students about this history. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about, relationships to the material before. You know, those conversations in some ways are going to look different depending on First of all, who's at the front of the classroom and who's definitely in those seats. And so this was just such um, a powerful, wise conversation. And um, I'm really looking forward to people hearing what these awesome educators have to say. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Exciting. I, you know, my my background in teaching is in history and I and I love hearing that history is coming out, too. And, you know, like with our high school kids, we just finished watching the movie movie Selma and there were things in the movie Selma that even I had either didn't learn or had forgotten about, you know, the people that were involved. So I think that's that's uh, that's incredible. And I'm, I'm actually going to I got to check this podcast out. I'm excited for it. You know, there's some oh, good yeah, history podcasts out. So. <laughs> yeah. So. All right. You know, keep continuing to wrap it up. So um, and this can be educationally or just in life. What was the best piece of advice of advice you were ever given? And who was the person that gave it to you? I think I think one of the most important tidbits I have gotten, and unfortunately, it, it's one of those things that you actually hear a lot of people say, so I can't attribute it to a specific source or person in my life. But it was reinforced for me, again, very recently. And that's basically the idea that you never know what someone is going through. So at any given time, when you encounter someone and they, you know, they seem to be having a bad day or they're snappy or they seem to be really prickly or um, or just really glum all the time or even really happy and perky, yeah. unless you really get to talk to them and, and know their story um, in an honest, authentic way, you never really know what they're going through. And I was most recently reminded of this in a conversation with one of my sisters who came to learn that a mutual friend of ours was having suicidal thoughts. And I was like, oh, really? I, 
say friend. I, maybe acquaintance is a better word. But um, like, oh, but he always seems so happy and, and you know and jovial and, and and it turned out that he had in recent years gone through a lot. He had been um, in the military and had suffered a horrible injury. Um, was going through issues in his marriage. Um, couldn't parent his child the way he wanted to. Um, was having some severe mental issues and so you know I think sometimes we are quick to judge people based on a particular encounter with them or who we perceive that person to be but you never really know what's on the other side of that and I think just on a basic human level it, it's just I feel a responsibility and you know it's a goal of mine to try to really look at someone's humanity and, and not assume that I know what they're experiencing, but, you know, to try to be a listening ear, to try to have empathy, um, definitely to try to reserve judgment and, you know, if possible, just reach them on a common level and uh, maybe learn more about their story. Um, in some cases, people just need somebody to really hear them or really see them. Oh, man, that's... That's such good advice. That's such good advice. I love that. So, all right, two two final questions I got for you. What is in your work with teaching tolerance? What is your proudest accomplishment to date? Oh, this is hard. <laughs> in, in some ways, I really feel like it's the, the, our teaching hard history initiative. Um, I, I feel like it's one of the um, one of the, the deeper, more robust single projects that we have, you know, put out there to really turn things around um, in education in a, in a really fundamental way. Um, I guess to go more personal, I um, I don't know if you've heard of the Green Eyeshade Awards. It, it's a regional award and um, in the southeastern region of the United States that recognizes journalism. And um, I won second place in a category uh, for that last year on the, um, the story I wrote about the Smithsonian's National Museum for African American History and Culture. And mm. so that was just a personal, like, you know, just really exciting um, to, you know, reach that high of recognition in the whole region. Um, that's, so that's, that's just a little fantastic. personal tidbit. That's fantastic. But um, th- this work that we're doing right now, I'm just, I'm really excited by it and um, really excited about where it's going. And, you know, I hope it turns the tide in our conversations and our teaching and learning on this really, you know, foundational subject. Great. All right. So before before we ask you the, you know, the final question, if people want to connect with with either you in particular or they want to start learning more about what teaching tolerance has to offer, what are the best ways that they can do that? Well, um, with Teaching Tolerance, our website is tolerance.org. So that's where you can find everything we offer, which is a lot. You know, probably more than I can say right now. Um, You know, we've got a a ton of classroom resources. I mentioned our text library. It's called our Perspectives Library. Uh, We've got professional development on our website. We're also doing uh, professional development trainings in person, on the road, in various cities in the United States. Um, We've got our magazine, of course. We've got also a host of other publications, including short articles on our website. So there's a ton of stuff there. You can build customized learning plans. 
us a lot. So that's tolerance.org, and um, you can just look for Teaching Tolerance on Facebook, on Twitter. We're on both platforms. We're there every day, engaging with folks. Um, I'm say, uh, for me personally, I'm on Twitter at Monita B underscore TT. That's at M O N I T A B underscore TT. And um, so I love uh, connecting with people uh, that way and just engaging with them. And if folks ever have um, questions or specific things they want to ask us about, um, you know, you can reach out on any of our social platforms. But we also have a contact form on our website. So if you want to shoot us an email that way, um, we love engaging with um, folks in our community. Awesome. Well, again, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule to have a conversation. Thank you, Kyle. It was my pleasure. I yeah. really enjoyed it too, and uh, I hope it you know reverberates beyond this conversation. Absolutely. So you know, to wrap it up, and we had kind of talked about how we wanted to ask this question, but but I'll ask it this way: um, What do you want the legacy of teaching tolerance to be? I really do hope that in, in helping young people, guiding young people to be more empathetic, uh, more caring, that we, we actually do create a more just society. Um, I know that might sound cliche, you know, make the world a better place kind of thing, but that really is the hope. And I, I think it just goes back to humanity. Um, I love this kid president quote where he basically says, you know, treat people like people, people. <laughs> I think oh my God. If we just, you know, if each of us, whoever we encounter, if we really do see the humanity in anyone we come across, you know, we won't have these Starbucks situations. We won't have, you know, beyond that, you know, the broader issues of, um, you know, identity-based violence and discrimination. You know, if we really do see the humanity in each other, you know, I hope young people will actually turn things around, that we really will have a society and a world that is more just, yeah. Awesome. That's a fantastic answer. And again, I really enjoyed the conversa- conversation. Manita Bell, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Kyle.